Welcome to this episode of Inside Publishing, the series where we interview industry experts on everything publishing. This episode is hosted by Nasa Murphy from SYP Ireland, who will be sharing an insightful conversation with editor of the Journal of Music and university lecturer Tona Quinn. They'll be talking about the business of building a digital readership, and we'll hear Tona's insights into the publishing job market. Tona Quinn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. So I feel I could uh, uh, go down many rabbit holes asking you all sorts of questions about music and writing and starting a publication. But I guess what I think would be most beneficial to the listeners for us to think about today is how you got to where you are and what we can actually learn from your career path in in publishing. So would you like to start by just telling us how you got started? Um, I believe you studied music for your undergraduate degree. Yes, I studied music. And when I finished my degree, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. That's quite normal, I think, when you finish an undergraduate degree for everybody. But I started writing about music and that probably shouldn't have surprised me. I didn't think of myself as a writer, but certainly I was trying to express myself somehow. But it shouldn't surprise me because my parents are writers and my my mother is a journalist. I was a journalist and my father has written a few books. So writing was always part of the household. Uh, I never thought of it like that. I went what I thought was a completely different route. I went down the music route. But then, you know, inevitably, you come back to your background. And I started writing about music. And the kind of essays and articles that I was writing, I wasn't quite sure where they could be published. It wasn't academic work. It wasn't standard journalism that you would read in magazines and newspapers. So I didn't really know where I was going to publish my work. I did get a couple of articles published in a music magazine, and I didn't like the way they were edited. And I think that was probably the first trigger that actually I might end up in the publishing world. But then you start to think about lots and lots of other issues that bring you into the publishing world. Anybody who ends up in the publishing world, it's a zigzag. There's nothing straightforward about it. It was about writing. It was about, you know, wanting to publish more writing about music and build a community of writers. And eventually I started getting interested in the idea of publishing. And uh, I literally just walked into the Book Publishers Association of Ireland. I just walked in one day in Temple Bar in the mid-1990s, late 1990s, and I just asked them. I'd say the conversation lasted about around 90 seconds. I just said, hi, um, I'm just wondering how you get into publishing. And they said, go to Sterling. And I walked out the door, and that was it. And I went, okay. So I just applied to the University of Stirling to do the MPhil in publishing studies there in the late 90s, 97, 98, I think. And um, I was gone in a few months and that's how I got into publishing. But my interests now weren't in music at that stage. They were much broader at that stage. I I was really just, I had a general idea about being involved in, in publishing. I really didn't know what that meant fully, but that's how I started. I love a few things that you said there right at the beginning when you said about not really thinking of yourself as a writer. I think there's a misconception out there that people who write write from when they're 10, 12 years old and they always know they're going to do something in writing or editing. But actually, I think a lot of writers find themselves when they're a little bit older and they've explored other interests and then it's they come to write about it. Um, and also that you said that you didn't like the way 
things that you were reading were being edited because I think that could be discouraging to a young person but you took it as a sign actually that there was a gap to fill (laughs) yeah um I mean the whole starting to write about music you see the thing about it was I was one of those children who wrote all the time and then music came along when I was around 12 and literally replaced writing for about Mm. 10 years and then when I was 22 suddenly the two merged again so creatively, that's what was happening in my life. You know, it's kind of interesting. I suppose I w- it wasn't that I was discouraged by what they were doing. I mean, it didn't surprise me because I knew that what I was writing didn't fit in anywhere. You see, I wasn't inspired by music magazines or music books. I was inspired by a different tradition, which is the tradition of literary magazines in Ireland. I was very inspired by that, you know, magazines, literary and intellectual magazines throughout the 20th century. That's really what I did my dissertation on when I was in Stirling. Magazines like The Crane Bag and The Bell and Dan at the beginning of the 20th century and Atlantis and Graph later on in the 20th century. So I was really interested in that sort of that tradition of what they call the little magazines, you know, that came out of literary and intellectual circles and they were really engaged with society, but focused on art at the same time. And all the great writing seemed to be in there and they never wrote about music much. And that kind of disappointed me because, uh, you know, I was interested in music and I wanted to create a kind of forum for that kind of writing, that kind of intellectually engaged writing, looking, talking about the bigger ideas around music, which was quite different to what you will read in academic books and what you will read in standard newspaper and magazine journalism. So with all of these ideas in my head, I went to Stirling and uh, spent a year there and then started working in the publishing industry. I think my first job was working in an environmental directory, writing about gates and fences and gardens and uh, light bulbs and all sorts of things. And then, you know, the Celtic Tiger was happening at the time, the economic boom in Ireland at that time. So... I was keeping an eye on what was happening in Ireland. I was sending in the odd email, looking for opportunities. I wasn't desperate to come home or anything. I was quite happy to leave Ireland. But there were a lot of opportunities in Ireland at that time. And I came back and started working in academic publishing, the Royal Irish Academy. Did a little stint in Irish Garden magazine and then got a job in Veritas, which a lot of people in Irish publishing pass through at some stage because it's one of the big employers. And um, I ended up as managing editor there for about three years. So I was publishing about 20, 25 books a year, mainly in the area of social justice, which really interested me. And I mean, some of the first books I would have published, you know, would have been Peter McFerry's first book on homelessness. You know, I was really into all those things. There was a book on racism. I remember responding to racism in Ireland. There was books on the Irish language. I published a book on Desmond Fennell. So I was really engaged with what was happening in society at that time and using book publishing as my sort of way of expressing myself, you know, about what I was interested in. But at the very same time as I was working in book publishing by day, at night I had started my own business, the music magazine, the Journal of Music in Ireland, as it was called then. So literally I would work by day from nine to five as a book editor. And then I would get in the dart and go home. And uh, we had a little boy at the time. And as soon as he was asleep at around nine o'clock, I would sort of go into my computer and work till around 2 a.m. on my, my magazine. Uh, Burning the candle at both ends for about four years. I mean, literally most days I would fall asleep in the dark coming home. I would often wake up in the wrong station and my wife would have to come and collect me because I was just doing the two things and it was just really too much. But I did that for about four years. 
And then after four years, I just decided to take the leap and I quit my job and just decided to make a go of it with my own business. That's super interesting, actually, that you've kind of touched on that burning, burning the candle at both ends. I think maybe my generation are convinced that we own the concept of the hustle <laughs> or that we are we are the generation that's been pushed to the, the limit all the time. But in reality, I guess like that is what it takes to start something of of your own, isn't it? And would you say you had a, a clear vision for the magazine that was pushing you forward through that hard work? Yes, I was interested in great writing about music. That's what I was interested in. It was very, very, very straightforward to me. I knew what excited me when I read it. I knew the kind of people that I wanted to attract to write for me. I had a kind of list right at the beginning and I just started going through it, ticking them off one by one. I was very methodical like that. Um, But I I just wanted to publish exciting, engaging, interesting, in-depth writing on music to create uh, a journal that would be equivalent to the great literary magazines, but focused on music. It was a lot of work. It was kind of crazy at times to take something on like that. You're kind of blessed by the fact that you don't know much better. But you have to understand as well that it was also my background. You see, I didn't realize this at the time, of course. I can only appreciate this now, 20 years later. But my parents were very much people who just started things and did things and burnt the candle at both ends. You know, I mean, they moved to Connemara in the... In the Galway, Gwaeltacht, in the early 70s and, you know, set up a film industry and, you know, opened a cinema and made films and did stuff. And, you know, they were entrepreneurial. They wouldn't have called themselves that. They were essentially, they were dropping out of society is what they were doing. Uh, so that's the environment I grew up in. It was people who just literally made up their lives as they went along and were constantly involved in things. The house was always full of creative people. So that was my background. And so I obviously gravitated towards that by actually starting a publishing business, you know, because of starting a publishing business. I mean, you talk about the different generations. Today, we talk a lot about, you know, on social media, people talk a lot about their community and a YouTube community and an Instagram community. But publishers throughout history um, have always been the community builders. That's something that drives them. If you go back as far as, this is an example I often give to the students, uh, John Taylor, the publisher of Keats, Clare, Coleridge, Hazlitt, he built a community of writers around him. Publishers have always been building these micro-communities, whatever it is in their nature, uh, that's what they do. And so there is kind of a correlation between today's social media world and people building communities and what publishers have always done. Social media um, and the whole online element of the Journal of Music is something I want to ask you more about. But before I get to that, I I have some practical questions um, leading off of what you've just said in that you say it was your background. So did you already have a network as you were starting the magazine that you think really helped you in terms of creating the content, sourcing writers, information, and also the, the skill set that you brought from your previous publishing experience? I imagine that that was a huge advantage as well. Uh, yes, as regards to network, well, I was a musician and I went to concerts and I read and I was social and I engaged with people. So, I mean, when I started the magazine, I mean, I didn't know everybody in music, not by a long stretch, but definitely there were people that I contacted and said, will you write for me? Will you write for me? But it was never beyond me to just pick up the phone and just ask people out of the blue or to send an email, to write a letter. Um, People are always delighted to be contacted, you know, and asked to write something, asked to to see that their creativity is valued. So, yeah, obviously, with my background, we did have a lot of 
artistic connections i suppose but still you've got to pick up the phone and just ask people you know i mean but even quite intimidating people in the cultural world you know they're always delighted to be asked if you know their work and you value what they do and you can see that they would fit in well with what you're doing and they would appreciate that so that's with regard to the network as regards the skills oh definitely i mean if i was publishing 20 30 books a year in print and then running a print magazine by night and also started as a print magazine, but I also had a website right from the start. I mean, it was clear that the internet was revolutionary from the start. But uh, definitely, I mean, I learned a huge amount about design, about working with writers, about distribution, about marketing, about sales. But I learned a heck of a lot by running my own business as well. You know, it definitely was the combination of the two. There's no doubt about it. And I would take what I learned from running a magazine and apply it to book publishing. And I would take what I learned from book publishing and apply it to running a magazine. So it was an intensive time, very enjoyable. I have no idea how I managed to do it for that long, to be honest with you. <laughs> and how did the how did the world of books versus the world of magazines compare? I imagine there's quite different time frames at work and different pace. Yes. Um, book publishing has the longest run in, you know, you might commission a book and then 18 months later, three years later, it might be published. That can happen with magazines. It could be weekly, it could be monthly, it could be bi-weekly, it could be bi-monthly. Things happen very, very fast. Obviously, you're dealing with shorter amounts of content. You know, the editorial process might be different. You might be more of a stickler when something is going to be a book. You know, with magazines, there's some, if you look at any magazine today, they might be as strict on italicization, you know, whereas in book editing, it's obviously the highest form of editing as regards the amount of detail we go into. But I try to apply that, to, certainly in my own magazine publishing, I try to apply book editing to magazine editing, that same kind of level of engagement with the writer and really, really trying to get the best writing I could. But I was running a bi-monthly magazine in every two months, so I had that kind of space. I was looking to publish essays, articles. Sometimes I would work with a writer over a few months. But there's no doubt about it. I mean, if you look at book, magazine, online the editorial process speeds up as you move through those three formats. So there's, there's a substantial difference. But we, all, we also are in, you know, what I sometimes call the age of convergence. You know, we are all being sucked into the vortex, which is the online world. What is the difference between a newspaper and a magazine once they're online? The turnover of material, maybe, but everybody's publishing every day now. So if you take what was a print newspaper and what was a print magazine and move them both online, they kind of both look the same now, you know, and book publishers still brilliantly have kind of held their own in this craziness. But, you know, they are being pulled online as well, not just as ebooks, but audiobooks, you know, they're podcasting. Book publishers now are these multimedia producers, just like magazine publishers, just like newspaper publishers. So we are in this kind of era of the great convergence where we, we are all moving in the same direction at different paces and we're all hanging on to something from the old print world and bringing it with us but it's it's uh, it's fascinating to watch you know but i would think they are the differences between the two at the moment in 10 years things will be very different you know i mean online publishing is just so fast in some ways like when you look at the news and you look at like entertainment content it is, it's several articles are coming out from the same publication a day. It is really, really fast, but there is a fantastic quality to what you do with the Journal of Music. And it's everything from 
like reviews to really interesting job listings. So how do you approach that and how has it changed over the years? Well, for the first, the Journal of Music is going for 20 years now. For the first 10 years, we were a print magazine with an online presence. And then after 10 Mm. years, I decided to move it online fully. And the reason for that was really, I saw the conversation had changed. Um, For a few years, I thought maybe social media had changed the conversation, but actually it was the smartphone. The smartphone changed things. So we can talk about the internet as pre-smartphone and post-smartphone. Um, around 2007, so the, the iPhone came along, and that was the game changer, really. Whereas the conversation, once upon a time when you published a print magazine, you know, when, it, when you published it and it dropped into people's letterboxes, you know, there would be certain engagement, the phone would ring, you know, there would be an email, you know, there would people contact you, and that was the print world. But then post-smartphone, I noticed that that went quiet because the conversation had moved online. And so in 2010, having watched this for three years, we could feel it, we could see it, you know, that that's where people's attention was. I moved the whole magazine online and you think that, well, I'll just move the magazine online. You know, it's pretty straightforward. We know what we're doing in print. We'll just do it online. You're literally starting from scratch, whether you realize it or not. But the whole thing about print and online is if you do print and online, you're riding two horses at the same time and eventually you've got to decide because the horses are going to go different directions. They're going to go at different paces. So who are you going to jump on? And I jumped on the online. And you're starting from scratch. You know, even though we'd always had an online presence, suddenly you have to sort of reimagine everything. You have to really ask, what are you about? Took a couple of years, more than a couple of years to really figure that out. And um, but the advantage you have in digital publishing is that you have data. Uh, You have analytics, you have Google analytics, which is telling you what people are interested in, telling you what people are kind of interested in, but won't hang around for long on it, and telling you what they are really interested in. So this is a huge advantage in digital publishing. It's something that we don't have in print, you see. Now, we can talk about ABC figures, we can talk about sales figures, but the printed page never told a publisher anything. It's silent. It goes out there. And it doesn't tell you anything back. You can say that, oh, well, we know how many it sold in the shop, et cetera, et cetera. The, the kind of granular data that analytics with digital publishing gives you is in an entirely different world. And you can build a business using those analytics. And that's what I did. You know, the moment I start work in the morning till I finish, I have Google Analytics open and it's telling me, it's constantly giving me constant feedback about what our readers are interested in. And that's why you see that range of content on the Journal of Music. We have job listings because that's what people are interested in. And the theory is, you know, they'll come for the job listings and then stay for the reviews. And you're kind of building a sort of community of readers who, you know, if you're just publishing groundbreaking 10,000 word reviews, uh, you won't get the readership for them. You know, people are too busy. Their lives are too fast. But if you can pull them in and they will gradually hover around your publication and start to read some of your content. So, but this is all, this is the advantage when you eventually decide to move to digital publishing only, this is the advantage you have. You cut loose from print and you then have all of the data. And it's, uh, it's extraordinary. And that's how over the past 10 years that has been 
absolutely core to building a business. I mean, if you imagine that Journal of Music in print had a couple of thousand readers, you know, which is very niche, you know, like literary journals, very, very niche for a couple of, couple of thousand readers for about 10 years. By 2010, we had 8,000 online readers around the world. 10 years later, we have a quarter of a million. Now that's all down to watching the data. Okay, so that's how you build a digital business, really. Now, there's lots of other things, but the data is key. Yeah. So the data has really, I suppose, probably changed your whole process for how you choose what topics you're going to cover, maybe the writers you're going to use. Is that a fair assumption? Yes and no, because I still believe core to the mission of the Journal of Music is to publish great writing. We often regularly publish reviews that may not attract a huge readership. We publish essays and articles and news items that may not attract uh, a large readership, but we fundamentally believe that it's really, really important that we publish this work. And also, that's the challenge for publishers, you know. If, if you publish a, a thousand-word groundbreaking review about a hip-hop artist or a classical composer, it's up to you to... F- to pull a readership in for that, you know, to build the readership for it. So maybe there's not a readership for it at the beginning, but it will ha- have long lasting value. You have to think about it in lots of different ways. You're also building up intellectual property for the future. With every concert we review, with every book we review, I'm conscious, having worked in this area for 20 years, that its value increases over time because you never know when a writer is going to be witness to something extraordinary maybe the emergence of a great new singer or a great new musician. And they were there and we managed to capture it. And in 15 years, that could be a really important piece. So you're building intellectual copyright for the future all the time. And that then works with search engine optimization into the future. It contributes to the long-term value of the magazine. So there's lots and lots of different factors. But no, you still don't, you know, if you're serious about publishing, if you're serious about great writing, you still don't compromise on those principles. Otherwise, your readers will see through you and they won't be interested. We publish lots of ephemeral material, you know, because people don't always have the time to read our in-depth content. Sometimes they just need to check something out quickly and we need to be there for them to provide that as well. Uh, They might need to check a concert date or a job deadline or a funding opportunity or something. So yes, the data does influence us, but we use it to support what we're about, which is publishing great writing and building a readership for that. Yeah, so it sounds actually like what you're doing is, um, as you've kind of just said, leveraging the data to create the audience for the work that you feel needs an audience and you know not just taking a creative and a a publishing point of view on it but also just good business sense as well it is business sense i mean on the ma in literature and publishing you know from the day the students walk in the first thing they hear is by the way this is a business we need to pay writers Okay, you're not paying your writers, you don't have a business. Where's the money going to come from? So you need a business. And I mean, I always separate publishing into a sort of three legged stool. You've got to have the editorial side and then sales and marketing and then distribution. These are the three legs of the stool. And you've got to get the balance right between all three. And that's how you build a publishing business. If one falls down, if one is left till the last minute, if one doesn't get the attention, if you don't think one is important, you don't have a business. At the end of the day, you need to pay your writers 
uh, you need to pay your writers because that's how you can spend more time on their writing, which means better writing. You need to f- have a readership for those writers. That means they will, you're building loyalty with those writers. The good ones will want to stay with you. Um, you need to carve out time for a proper editorial process so that you can really dedicate your time to working with the writer to get the best out of them and challenging the writers and making sure there's time for that. So I'm constantly thinking of those three things all the time. And that's how we, that's how we work. That um, segues us very nicely onto the MA in publishing in NUI Galway. So I do want to just give you the opportunity to share a little bit about that course uh, with the listeners, because it is our only, I understand, I believe, our only publishing MA um, in Ireland. I suppose, what do you what do you think the course offers to students and what are some of the, the highlights of the course? Well, it's an MA in literature and publishing. I do think it may be the only such course in Ireland. It's one of the most popular master's degrees in, in the humanities in the university. We take in around 18 students every year. It's already for September 2021. It's already full. It's not accepting applications anymore. Uh, so September 2022 is the next intake. And I teach two modules on the MALP. Before Christmas, contemporary publishing. And you'll notice it's not called book publishing. It's called contemporary publishing. So we really do try and cover the full gamut, which is book, magazine, digital, and how all of them work. And we, you know, And then after Christmas, I uh, teach a module called Copy Editing and Proofreading. And there are modules in book history. There's modules in Introduction to Business. There's modules in Marketing. There's modules in Literature. Everything from medieval to contemporary literature, North American literature. And then right at the heart of the MALP is Ropes Literary Journal, which the students produce themselves every year, which amazes me every year because they meet in September and by April they have their very own literary journal. And it has been published without fail um, for the past 20 odd years, even this year. In a pandemic, when our students have not even met, they managed to actually produce this year's edition of Ropes Literary Journal. And our feedback from the students is that that's really one of the most exciting aspects for them, because at the end of the year, they have a print journal, really, you know, the product of all their work. They've learned a huge amount. They divide themselves in teams. It's editorial, marketing, sales. You know, they're selling advertising, they're working with writers, they're working with charities, they're trying to raise money for charity. Um, and they're going through all the processes that any, you know, anyone in the publishing industry will go through. So I think that's really, really valuable for them. So, you know, for, for my own part, I really, in my own modules, I am certainly trying to prepare Uh, the students to work in the publishing industry. I'm trying to give them insights into all the things they have to think about. And once again, I will come back to those three core aspects, editorial, sales and marketing, distribution, constantly thinking about these things. It doesn't matter what format we're in, whether we're in print or digital, how are we thinking about these three things? How do we apply these to ropes? How do we apply these to, to your own ideas about publishing? Obviously, everybody comes in and they well, not everybody, but the majority would come in and they sort of they want to be an editor and a book publisher because that's the popular image of, of, of publishing. And they soon learn that the publishing world is so much more diverse than that, that there's opportunities in lots of different areas that 
digital is growing at a huge rate. And and they also discover skills that they may not know they had, you know? Everybody comes in with a sort of editorial uh, inclination. But after working on ropes, suddenly they realize, hey, I'm pretty good at marketing. Hey, I'm very good at sales. Wow, I never realized I love production and design so much. So by April, they have actually discovered that actually I'm, I think I might go into this area I think I might go into this area so that's I think one of the really positive aspects that's what ropes really brings out of the students they they discover something about themselves their own skills that's very exciting that sounds fantastic you really can't replace practical experience with anything in my opinion um, and the fact that they get to see all of the different aspects of publishing and what goes into actually creating something is amazing and I think as a lecturer on a publishing course, you're very well positioned to offer advice to early publishing professionals or early career professionals. And I do want to ask you what your advice is to those of us who are starting off, both because you're in a position as a lecturer where you sort of see students going off into the beginning of their career, but also because of what you've managed to achieve and how you've started your own publication as well. So what would you say is your key advice for those of us that are early in our careers? I think... And when I think back to starting off as well in publishing is to realize that you are actually surrounded by opportunity. It's sometimes difficult to see that. It's sometimes, you know, our instinct is to see the limits around us. I'm, I'm, I'll never get in there. How can I get in there? That's too far away. I, kn- I wouldn't know how to start with that job. I don't know anything about that. But actually, you know, students people starting off in publishing today, they're surrounded by opportunity in a couple of ways. Firstly, in Ireland, they're living in a very vibrant, culturally exciting country. Whether we realise it or not, for all its flaws, this is a great country culturally. It's vibrant. There's lots and lots going on here. There's lots of interesting artists and interesting writers here. So they're in a good environment. The other side of it is when I started working in publishing uh, or went to study publishing, the most exciting thing that had just happened was that Amazon had arrived and everybody was talking about, wow, you can sell books online. And, you know, we used to think that was the most exciting time in the world to start in publishing. But actually today is the most exciting time to start in publishing. Why? Because of the amount of, because of the technology available to you because you're completely empowered to take control of your life, to actually have an impact around you, regardless of your niche interest. So I think it's really, really important that anybody starting out in publishing or finishing a degree realizes that they are literally swimming in opportunity right now. This is not a land of limitations at all, you know. There's technological opportunities, there's cultural opportunities, there's funding opportunities you know of course the culture industries the publishing is one of them it's a very challenging world it's um it requires a lot of persistence to have an impact culturally but if you're passionate about it and you recognize that there's opportunities all around you then you can really make progress there's no doubt about it i think i would much prefer to be starting today than 20 years ago with the internet i mean it's just it's an extraordinary time Uh, It's sometimes difficult when you become so used to it. But this is really a golden age as regards publishing. And you won't hear that often. You know, everybody will tell you that, no, it's a terrible time because people aren't buying, people aren't reading, the writing's no good, etc., etc., etc. You will hear that all the time. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think this is 
if you are interested in opportunity, if you're interested in great writing, uh, I mean, they, they used to say about the internet that, you know, all the writing will be bad because you can just publish it yourselves. Actually, it works the other way because, because you actually, you will find a very, very quick whether your writing is having an impact or not. So you're getting this constant feedback loop, like the data I was talking about earlier on. But I think that is fundamentally ish to realize the opportunities that are around you and to seize them, you know? If you really want to take control of your career, pick up that phone, send the email, make things happen for yourself. It's not about waiting anymore. It's not about looking for permission anymore. You actually have the tools around you to actually be empowered and actually take the steps to make whatever you want to happen, happen. I love that. I think that's fantastic advice um, and very encouraging because it's it's true. It's easier than ever for us to take control and, you know, self-publish, publish, publish uh, a blog, an article, whatever it is that's going to help get where you want to go and say what you want to say. So I guess my final question on that note is what do you think is next for both yourself and the Journal of Music um, and for the publishing industry? Well, um, that's a difficult question, obviously. <laughs> I think that certainly lecturing on the MALP in NUI Galway, um, I have to revise my curriculum every single year. <laughs> Not my curriculum, but certainly my courses. I have to rethink things, you know? Things are changing very fast. A few years ago, Facebook, social media, they were kings. Now they're scandal magnets. You know, things change. Things change. Things that seemed indomitable a few years ago suddenly are falling apart. What do I think about the future of the publishing industry? I think the greatest advantage we have, as I said, is data and analytics and anybody working in the publishing industry. I think we just need to keep an eye on the data, know what we're about, know what the kind of writing we want to publish, but use those that analytics and data. And I think that's how we will actually survive whatever is coming down the road. As regards the Journal of Music, we're building all the time, you know, broadening out the range of musics we cover. I mean, my ultimate vision for it would be, if you look at the great literary magazines or literary intellectual magazines around the world, the Atlantic, you know, the TLS, the New York Review of Books, I would hope that, you know, someday the Journal of Music will be sort of a musical equivalent for that on a global scale. You know, that's you have to have a very, very large, ambitious uh, objective way out in front of you to keep you working at the pace we need to work. I 100% agree. And I think that was an excellent answer to a difficult question. And yeah, I will leave it there. Thank you so much. You've been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Nasa. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Publishing. That was Nasa Murphy, our wonderful events officer for SYP Ireland, in conversation with Tona Quinn on his work in digital publishing. To join a conversation on Irish publishing, head to at SYP Ireland on Twitter. 